Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. We enter a pivotal moment this morning in our Gospel of Luke with Jesus and His disciples. They have been many chapters now, nine and a half or eight and a half chapters of seeing Jesus with the birth narrative and working of His miracles and His ministry, going around preaching, proclaiming repentance. And now we kind of hit a, a real moment, a real turning point in, in the narrative here. Luke puts this section at this point to emphasize really what he's been saying to us over the past several weeks about the identity of Jesus. And you now when I say Luke, I, I kind of want to point out, I obviously mean that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this is what God is saying to us through someone like Luke. Luke gathers this information in a certain way, and I don't mean to say that to communicate in any way that somehow Luke is writing and not God. God sovereignly ordains and, and he, he carries these men along. In His sovereignty, He allows these men and their personalities, their communication styles to bring all these things in, to write down these words for us, superintending them in such a way that the individual personality of the writer still comes out and yet the Holy Spirit guarantees in their being carried along by the Holy Spirit that the words that are written down are accurate and true. And so I say that to say that God in His sovereignty has allowed Luke as the one divine author, Luke as an under-author, sort of, to gather this content in this location. And I say that because if you read through Matthew and Mark, you find quite a bit of ministry that happens after the feeding of the 5,000 before this confession at Caesarea Philippi. It's not called that here in Luke, but if you read Matthew and Mark, they talk about the confession at Caesarea Philippi. It's the location that they are that when, when Peter makes this confession. Matthew and Mark have quite a bit of ministry that happens after the feeding of the 5,000. Mark, in fact, records for us the feeding of the 4,000 that happens later on, but Luke doesn't have any of that content. He goes from the feeding of the 5,000 straight into this confession at Caesarea Philippi, this confession of Peter. And Luke doesn't specifically tell us why he does this, but I think if we look around a little bit, we can see this theme that Luke is working on. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like to have you look with me to kind of get where Darren is going with this, to see it for your own eyes. If you flip back to chapter 7, Verse 49 in your Bible, just a couple of chapters back. Chapter 7, verse 49. This is during this story of the sinful woman. Jesus gets invited to this, this Pharisee's party. This sinful woman comes along and, and he forgives her of her sins. Verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? They begin asking this question. And it's happened before, but we only have time for so much. So... Right here we see this theme beginning. Who is this? Who is this that forgives even sins? You flip back to chapter 8, verse 25. This is after the calming of the storms. Jesus, the, the, the disciples and Him are out on a boat. The waters come up and He 
They, they, he's asleep in the back of the boat, commands the waters to stop. They stop, ask them, where is their faith? Verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? Luke's begin, Luke begins to gather these questions. Who is this guy? Who is this? Who is this? We've seen it there at the Pharisees' party after the uh, calming of the storm. Jump down to chapter 9, verse 9. Right before the feeding of the 5,000, there's this little interlude about Herod, who's heard about Jesus. This was a couple of weeks ago. Herod the Tetrarch, verse 7, heard about all that was happening. He was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and he knew he'd cut John the Baptist's head off. But by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Here the crowds, Jesus, it's a recurring question that goes on from various people that Jesus encounters. Who is this? Who is this? But there's a shift in that now the question is coming from the mouth of Jesus himself, asking, who do people say that I am? Who am I? This gets put in the mouth of Jesus. He himself begins to turn the tables and ask the question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, having traveled around and they've talked with lots of people about Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God, and, and they give the replies that we've seen from Herod that are common in that day. Some people think John the Baptist has come back from the dead, or some think it's Elijah, and they've seen this, uh, they think it's some uh, other great prophet that has come back to life and is wandering around. And us, with our church background, we think, our, guys, it's Jesus. It's not John the Baptist. It's not Elijah. It's Jesus. Come on, don't you know? But they, they had none of, they didn't have their New Testament down for them yet. They're living it. So they don't have the obvious, no, it's not John the Baptist. It's not Elijah. Put yourself in their shoes. They, they're really wondering what's going on in this moment of time. This man has, has come out, has begun ministering, working miracles. Who is it? And you have to remember, God has been silent. There has been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. The book of Malachi ends and God goes silent. If you read the apocryphal literature there the, in, the, in the intertestament periods between the end of Malachi and the book of Matthew, they're commenting there in those books that no one's hearing for, from God. They basically say, if, if we have these matters and if only we, and this is what we think we should do, but we have no direct word from God on what we should do. God has gone silent for 400 years. They know that there has been no great prophet that has, been ris- that has risen up. And so they're looking. They know prophecies like Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, that, that a great prophet is going to come up. They know, like at the end of the book of Malachi, there's going to be the spirit of Elijah is going to come and return the hearts of the fathers to the children. You know that passage there at the end of Malachi. They're looking for this. They're looking for this great prophet. So they be, they're, they're thinking, well, I don't know. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist, this great prophet that's come back? For their understanding, that is, that is who and what they are to be looking for. Jesus, just like John the Baptist, has been preaching this repentance, belief, the kingdom of God has come. It's a logical conclusion that he's a prophet. And in fact, Jesus really is a, a prophet of God. There's the, the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus fulfills really all three of them. He is a prophet sent by God in a way of speaking though he is far more than just a prophet. He's certainly not less. 
But after asking this question, Jesus says, you know, who do you say that, who do the crowds say that I am? They get, he gets kind of the standard answer, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets of old. He asks this interrogative, interrogating, deciding question, dividing question. Who do you say that I am? No longer is it in this category of esoteric, you know, what's out there about me. He's looking them dead in the eyes and saying, but okay, that's, that's what's out there, there. Who do you say that I am? Not what's out there. Who do you say that I am? And after asking that question, the first question, Jesus ratchets it up, asks them, who do you say that I am? And there's a couple of things, just two things this morning I want us to notice about this interaction. The first is the answer that Peter gives, calling him the Christ of God. And the second is the emphasis of this question. Peter answers correctly, as confirmed by Jesus, that that, that saying that Jesus is the Christ of, of God. But what really is meant by this confession? And, and I commend it to you. We don't have time this morning. It's not good necessarily. It's a, more of a teaching moment to go through and get a systematic theology and look up what is this Christ? What is this Christos, this Messiah? What, what is this title, this person that they're looking for? And you can go back and a systematic theology or whatever will work you through all of the Old Testament passages pointing towards this Christos, this Messiah, this Christ of God that is to be coming. And really those are all interchangeable terms. We've got, it's Christos in the Greek, it's Messiah, I can't, I don't know Hebrew, Mashiach, Mashiach in the Hebrew, I've butchered that, but you don't know, but anyway, it's Messiah in the Hebrew, which means the anointed one. They're looking for this anointed one. They're looking for this Messiah. And it's all a reference back to first or Second Samuel chapter 7, this Davidic line where, remember, David's going to build God this great house. He's going to build this big temple. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you into a great nation. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build into you. And, and from you will come a, a king who will sit on the throne forever. And that from that moment on, they're looking for this Messiah, this anointed one, this king who's going to come. From that point on, that's who they're looking for. And when, when Peter says this, it's tied up with all of that language. This Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the Christos, the one, the Christ, this one that we have been looking for. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It isn't Jesus Christ. It is his title. He is Christ. He is Messiah. He is the anointed one. And this absolutely is who Jesus is. But there's some real dissonance as we get on to just next week with this passage. There's some real dissonance between what they think the Messiah is and who the Messiah really is and what he's here to accomplish. There's real dissonance. It's not the political and military ruler that they are expecting, but a ruler of another type. And we see immediately as they come down of this Caesarea Philippi confession, we look down at verses 21 and 22 of 9 for next week, he charges them to tell no one because he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. He warns them that though he is this Messiah, it's going to look different than they expect. This revelation is huge and it's central to the issue that we've been pushing on, along, pushing on all through our study in the book of Luke, the, re- Luke, the reality of who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. He is this Messiah. 
We've yet to see fully how this is going to play out in the Gospel of Luke. But this man is the anointed one. Jesus is working here to leave us no room for dispute on who he is. He is the Christ. He is divinity in human flesh. He is the God-man. And by making that reality clear, he rules out many of the images of him that are popularly put forward. Just a couple we need to confront. The idea of Jesus being this good moral teacher. That Jesus came on earth and he taught us all how to live. And basically, he just taught the, good, the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's a good rule. It's in there. That's a good thing. And, but we, we boiled Jesus down to just basically a good moral teacher. That's popular in lots of our cultural Christianity. Just a good moral teacher. But Jesus blows all of that out of the water. If, if the man teaching you your morals lies about his identity... Can we really say he's teaching good morals? I mean, you know, do, do unto others as you had them do unto do unto others as you'd have them do unto you by lying about your own identity, by saying I am the Christ, the Messiah, when really he isn't, saying that he and the Father are one when really they aren't. He's not just some good moral teacher. He is not taught morals well if he's lying about his identity. The hippie peace kind of love Jesus is gone too because these people are equating him with one of the Old Testament prophets. Read Zechariah. Read Zechariah and listen to the hippie peace love message, the, the, the love that flows there in Zechariah. It's repent. It's repent and turn to God and Jesus and John the Baptist come on the scene and they think they're one of those Old Testament prophets because they're calling repent, repent. He, Jesus doesn't walk around affirming everyone in their sins like the Old Testament. And the Old Testament prophets didn't do that either. Jesus walks around loving sinners, forgiving them of their sin, and their call to repent and trust in Christ. Quote from C.S. Lewis, he pushes on this point of decision in his book, Mere Christianity. says this, says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I would argue this is the central feature that Luke is driving home to us, the identity of Jesus. Who is this guy? Who is this man that has shown up working these miracles? All the incredible circumstances we've worked through so far in Luke with the birth narrative. Think about all those amazing details of Gabriel showing up, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary's virgin pregnancy and the angels showing up, the shepherds and and Simeon and Anna and all these prophecies going on, the birth narrative, the miraculous things going on there, the witness at his baptisms, his baptism of The voice coming from heaven and a spirit floating like a dove down upon him. This is my son. With him I'm well pleased. Um, We've got all of these things building up 
We've got all these miracles. We've seen Jesus' authority just recently over nature, over demons, over disease, and over death. All of these things pointing and telling us, look no further. The one you're searching for, here he is. This Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, here he is. So I want, Peter is right in confessing that he is the Christ of God. But second, the emphasis of the shift from the mouth of Jesus. The, the you in verse 20 of Luke chapter 9, when he says, but who do you say that I am? That emphasis is correct. Jesus, in the Greek that's in there, from my commentaries that I read, that it's emphasizing the personal nature of this question. Who do you say that I am? takes it out of the realm of possibility into a personal application. Who do you say that I am? Though at first he's asking what they had heard others say about him, he switches the emphasis not in asking who, in asking who they say he is. And this important dividing line exists for us down to this very day. The question is pretty non-threatening, so long as you ask it in some sort of, from a distance. You can say all sorts of things that people say about Jesus, and really none of them have any impact on you. But knowing all the different things, but knowing all the different things do not matter. But knowing what matter, but knowing all the different things, what people say about him, knowing all these things that they say about Jesus doesn't really matter. What matters is what you say he is. At the end of the day, the court of public opinion on Jesus will not matter. The court of public opinion will not matter. What will matter is what you personally have said of him. Who do you say that he is? You. Not, not, not who does everyone say Jesus is. You, personally. Who is this man? Who is he? The question for you today is not, what has your family always believed about Jesus? Or, or what does your pastor believe about Jesus? The question is not, what does this town think of Jesus? Not, what does this culture think of Jesus? What does our nation think of Jesus? What do our leaders, what does our culture think of Jesus? That's not the question. The question today, what do you think of Jesus? Who is this man? Who is this man? Who do you say that he is? And one way to tell what you say about Jesus is what you do when you're really confronted with him. That's why I kind of want to take some time to put you on the, on the line, to toe the line on this issue. Who do you say he is? What I mean is it's one thing to say over and over again, something like this. It's one thing to say over and over again, I really like meatloaf. You've probably heard this from me before. It's a common theme in my preaching. I like meatloaf. Okay, so and I do. I was raised on meatloaf, big pan, sweet top. Uh, I really like meatloaf. Meatloaf is my favorite. The sweet topping, the loaf shape that it comes in, the spices that are in the meat. Meatloaf is when it comes to food, you just you can't get much. Uh, meatloaf is just wonderful. It's simple, but it's elegant. It's wonderful. Meatloaf is supreme. So it's one thing to affirm all these things about meatloaf, and it's another thing to sit down at the table and eat meatloaf because I love it. Two different things. One is saying all these things that are great about it. And if you think Milo's disgusting, use something else, okay? Uh, you know, ice cream or whatever your favorite thing is. It's one thing to say, oh, it's wonderful. And it's another thing to actually sit down and take it into yourself. This really, it's like walking by the buffet line. If there's a buffet that has meatloaf on it and I pass it up, you could say, Darren does not love meatloaf. He says he does, but he just passed it. If I say, I, I say I love it, 
when the buffet line comes along and there's meatloaf on it, guess what I do? I try that meatloaf. I, I'm going to try that thing. I'm going to, if there's a buffet with meatloaf on it, the person that says they love meatloaf ought to get the meatloaf. Sorry for going on and on about meatloaf. But my point is this. Who do you say Jesus is? And by that I mean, do you ever just go from, the, from this thing of talking about, here's all these things Jesus did. Here's all these things Jesus talked about. Here's all these uh, things surrounding Jesus to ever actually getting down and just enjoying Jesus. Loving Jesus for who he is, for what he's promised, for all that he has done for us. Going from this esoteric who he is to who is he to me. In the buffet, when, when we have fellowship, do we ever just sit down and enjoy him, having him, knowing him? And when we're in fellowship here in this church, and when we're at home and in various places throughout the day, do you believe in Jesus in this authentic way that is glad in the having of him? Or are we more cerebral in, well, I'm a Christian and I know that these things happen? Or do I actually confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, my Savior, when the buffet line of life comes along, and man, the buffet line of life is long. There are millions of things for you to dine on and the world will throw at you. Spend five minutes watching television and you'll have commercial after commercial thrown at you of things for you to dine on. And when the buffet line of life comes along and you see Jesus, do you pass and say, there are some things on this buffet line I'd kind of like to try that I kind of have my heart first. Where are, do you, where are you with this idea of not cerebrally confirming and confessing Jesus, but actually partaking of him? Leon Morris says in his commentary, the knowledge of Christ is always a personal discovery. It is not the passing on a report learned from other people. What do you say personally of Jesus? And beyond that, do you personally know, believe, and trust Jesus? So here's the reality. I know, and if you're honest, you know too, there are many times that you've walked down the buffet line of life and chosen something besides Jesus. I, I mean, I could stand up here and be like, oh, I'm the specimen number one. I always, I always just run to Jesus only and the, thing, the lures of the world never appeal to me. And I would be lying dead-faced to all of you. And all of you would be lying if you said there weren't times in your life when you've walked down the buffet line of life and you said, I'll have this. God doesn't want me to have it, but I want this, I want this, I want this. And Jesus, if I have room left over in the tank, I'll have it maybe for dessert after I get all the things I really want. And if we're honest, that's all of us. Probably even this morning we have done this even. So then what are we to do? What I am calling for us to do is not peripherally believe in Jesus, but to personally believe in Jesus. And not just to personally believe in a Jesus of our own making, but to personally believe in this Jesus that Scripture and the Gospel has put forward. Who is this Jesus? He is a Savior who is ready to forgive. Yes, even the sinful transgression of not choosing Him of turning from him, of your rebellion. This is a Savior who is ready to forgive. He's a Savior who has given up his life for the rescue of sinners who've passed on him time and time again. If this is love, not that we love God, but that he sent his Son. We know the love of God that even while we were yet sinners, passing, that's the Romans 5, 8, we just read in our uh, call to worship, I think, this morning. While we were yet sinners, what's that mean? You were passing on Jesus. What does he do? 
He shows up and dies for sinners. A sinner, a, a Savior who's ready to forgive. What you and I need more than anything is an accurate view of the worth of this Savior in the vast giving of a thousand things to satisfy ourselves with. To see the immense worth of the Savior in such great magnitude that when the buffet line of life is laid out for me, because I know the worth of Jesus, ain't no way I'm passing on Him. Ain't no way, sorry to use the word ain't, isn't, there's no way I'm going to pass on this Savior. It's too, it's too valuable. He's worth too much for me to pass and to choose anything else besides Him. What you and I need more than anything is an accurate view of the worth of this Savior. We often think of increasing our resolve. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose Jesus. We need to, we got to increase our resolve. Like Jesus is this medicine we have to take. And so it's prescribed, I need it, and I don't really like it, but I know i got to have it, so I'm going to choose it. That is the wrong way to view Jesus. You don't, we, we don't want to just increase our own resolve. Life then comes along, and, and who we say he is and our valuing of him doesn't line up with the choices that we make. Instead of increasing your resolve to choose Jesus, here's what I want you to do this morning. Instead of just trying to white-knuckle yourself into, oh, I'm going to choose him first, here's what I want you to do. See Jesus for who he is and all of his immense worth coming to earth, dying for sinners. My desire is that you would see Jesus for the incredible Savior that he is. My desire is not to have people of great willpower where there's this great, well, we just make choices and we stick by them, but instead to have people who see clearly. Because your willpower is going to fail at some point. To see clearly who this Jesus is. I'm so confident in the, the value of Jesus, the ultimate value of his worth, that my, my concern is not trying to guilt you into making better decisions. Come on, you should choose Jesus. I'm not trying to guilt you to make better decisions or to try to be some motivational speaker trying to pump you up to choose Jesus. My desire is just see him for who he is. Just see him for who he is. And I don't have to ratchet myself up that I would cling to him. Why would I not? Why would I not run to this Savior, came to earth, lived the righteous life I should have lived but didn't, died the death that I deserved so that through repentance and faith in him, I'd be forgiven of my transgressions, forgiven of my guilt, and reconciled to my creator forever for a happy life forever for an eternal life, why would I not do that? What we need is not guilted into making decisions or somehow pumped ourselves up. We need to see. We need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We need to see him for who he is. The man who bore the sins of many. The one who rose from the grave victorious so that we could be raised to the newness of life with him. As we come to communion this morning, repent of your blindness. God, I, I, don't, I, I don't see you. Clearly enough, I see, I see the worth of all these things that are garbage, that are fading away, and I devalue you. God, I repent of my blindness. Give me eyes to see. Ask for eyes to see. Don't take the bread and the cup thoughtlessly. These are tangible elements of our Savior and of his sacrifice. See him in them. Rejoice in them. See his great love for you. See him for who he is. Confess him as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your treasure. And rejoice. Not in what we've done to climb to him, but rejoice in him for who he is 
and all that he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us eyes to see. I don't want to drive anyone out of compulsion or false conviction or uh, strong-arming anyone. Father, give us eyes to see the immense value, beauty, and worth of you and of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might treasure you rightly and run to you and continue running and drinking and feasting on you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.